This morning we have arrived at the end of First Samuel. Nate, can you turn the volume on this down just a little bit? Just pull it down on this side. We've arrived at the end of First Samuel. Now this, of course, is not the end of the book as a whole. There's Second Samuel, of course, and some versions even uh, treat First and Second Kings as part of this so that it's one of four books, at least with respect to the story itself. But we come in this volume to a sad end, a difficult end, a troubling end. At the end of the book of Genesis, you'll recall we have the death of Joseph in Egypt. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, we have the death of Moses just outside of the Promised Land. At the end of the book of Joshua, we have the death of Joshua, the death of Eleazar, the priest, and then the burial of the bones of Joseph. And now coming here to the end of 1 Samuel in chapter 31, we have the death of Saul and the death of Jonathan and of many others as well. Hear this portion then of the Word of God and may it penetrate us heart and soul as we hear it and as we listen to it, the Word of God. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchi Shua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus. Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day, together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all of the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there, and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. Dies irae. Let's pray. Lord God, 
help us as we once again come to your word and as we once again come to a portion of your word that we must admit that in many ways we would perhaps rather not think about, we'd rather not deal with it, we'd rather not look at it, we'd rather turn away and just not say it. And yet here it is, Lord, and as we preach our way through your word, we are confronted by this because you want us to be. And so help us to hear, help us to take heed and listen and learn. Guide us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have seen this day coming. It's an ugly day. To read it is ugly. To think about it is ugly. But we've seen it coming. In fact, we really saw the outlines of this day coming from the very beginning of the book, from the Song of Hannah, which we have now read, the Prayer of Hannah that we've now looked at many times together. The kind of outlines of a day like this to come are set before us in that prayer that she makes. Early on in the book, the judgment of Eli and his household by these same Philistines with the capture of the ark, with the glory departing from Israel was really a precursor of this event that we see recorded here for us. And, and then as we have read this book and as we've tracked along together, Saul's failure, his first sin and his subsequent sins have all portended that a day like this was certainly going to be coming. I'm sorry, are you getting a hum back there? Am I the only one who's hearing a hum? Are you getting a hum? Anybody else? Yep, okay, I'm going to switch. Semper Gumby. Always flexible. All right, so it, the, the day has been coming, and we've seen it coming. And, and, and specifically speaking, three chapters back, if we just went three chapters back, is that another strange sound that's coming from it? I got nothing. Nate, you got any ideas back there? Some sound wizard go back and do something with the sound to, uh, to clear this thing up. So three chapters ago, the spirit of Samuel, who was raised, albeit inappropriately, by Saul, warned of this day to come and all that this day would entail. We have seen it coming, this diasire, this day of wrath, this day in history when the holy, perfect, righteous judgment of God falls. The Word of God speaks to this day of wrath in both the Old and the New Testaments. I don't know if you caught this in the reading from Romans that we had earlier, but in Romans we read this, Romans 2 verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There is a day of wrath coming. The book of Revelation pictures it in any number 
of ways, not the least of which is a picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ mounted on a horse. Faithful and true is he as the King of kings. And he comes leading the armies of the living God against those who have rebelled. They will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And they will, and think about this, this is quoting directly from Revelation, but think about it with respect to our text today. They will devour the flesh of kings and devour the flesh of captains and devour the flesh of mighty men. Now, those passages, others in the Old Testament and in Testament as well. Those passages describe for us the final or the last diasire, the final judgment on the last day. But in scripture and in life, occasionally we are given glimpses of that day to come. Such passages and such days like this one that we have in 1 Samuel 31 are given to generation after generation of the people of God, not only to those to whom the events took place, but to all of us who come after them, who read and consider these things as a warning, as a call for us to pay attention, to shock us by their ferocity, and to call us as the people of God to a watchful preparedness. Now, if you want an illustration of what this day is like, what it might sound like, they are available for us musically speaking. The words diasire are taken from passages like the one that I read for us in Romans chapter 2, where the Latin translation of the day of wrath is diasire. But it's also a piece of music that is found in the requiems. And so today, if you want to get a sense of, musically speaking, the diasire, go home and put on the Mozart Requiem and listen to the diasire. It's about the third piece into the uh, Requiem. And if, if that doesn't get you, you, you want to turn that up loud, you want to get the dog out of the house, you want to warn your house members, and then go to Spotify if you don't have a version of this, but get the Verdi Requiem and put on the DSRA from the Verity Requiem and turn it up loud and you'll get a picture of this idea of the day of wrath and understand the warning that it is for us. Now, this morning, what I would like us to do is I'd like to just work our way through this passage this morning without the pressure of an outline. I just want to take it verse by verse and step by step as we go through it today. So follow along with me in the text in your Bibles or in the bulletins as I kind of work through it this morning. So first verse. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. In this verse and in the remainder of the passage, we see that the judgment of God led not only to the death of Saul, but to other deaths as well. It led to the death of his armor 
bearer. It led to the death of all his men. It led to the deaths of the men of Israel. And of course, specifically in verse 2, it led to the deaths of Saul's three sons who are mentioned here in this text. And I think as we look at a text like this, and, and even having seen this to be coming, a question might arise in us, which is to say, if God was going to bring his judgment against the evil deeds of Saul for the things that we have seen him do, then why isn't the judgment of God more specific, more targeted, more, if you will, a smart weapon type of judgment from God? Why, in other words, why the collateral damage? Why are there other people who are caught up in the judgment of God being meted out upon the person of Saul? Now, perhaps we would look at that question and say, well, all of these people who died must have been guilty in the same way that Saul was, and therefore they deserved this outpouring of the judgment of God and of the wrath of God. The problem is, of course, that Jonathan is amongst those who are killed in this battle, who fall with Saul on Mount Gilboa. And I don't know what we can say about the others. We don't know a lot about the details of the others. But of Jonathan, he has been presented to us throughout this book as a man of deep and abiding faith. He's a man we can trust in the midst of all of this, and he falls too. And so, so let's try and see how does Scripture allow us to understand the death of not just Saul, but of many others as well. I want to suggest two things to us that I think can help us as we think about a question like that in a situation like this. The first is this, that while this is indeed a day of wrath, it is not the day of wrath. Okay, it is a day of wrath, but it is not the final day of wrath. When God's justice is measured out in this world, this life is not the full measure of the justice of God. So whether we be talking about the grace and the goodness of God that we have experienced in this world, or whether we be talking about a passage like this one, the judgment of God that we and or others have experienced in this world, we have to recognize that while it is important and it is meaningful and it is real, it is preliminary. Preliminary. It is, if you will, a preliminary hearing or a preliminary judgment that is meted out in this particular case. The final and perfect outworking of the justice of God awaits. And so even though, even though this is the end of the book, this is the end of the life for those whom we've talked about already, it is not the end. It is not the final judgment of God. That awaits, and that perspective helps us to understand how we evaluate things in this world, even things as tragic as the death, for example, of someone like Jonathan in a situation like this. That's the first thing to keep in mind. The second thing that we have to keep in mind is that when we see 
whether it's patriarchs or judges or kings raised up in scripture in person and in position, they officially and organically and spiritually represent the people. When, when they have that position in scripture, they represent the people. We call it federal headship or we call it covenantal headship. Now here's the significance of this. The importance of it and the clarity of it is probably seen in Romans 5 more so than in any other place in scripture. And we're not going to turn there because to get to that would take us into too many details. But to, to simplify for a moment, Paul in Romans 5 describes that there are two covenantal heads for all of humanity. One is Adam and the other is Christ. And all of humanity is represented in one or the other of those two kings. And how you are aligned with those two kings, the position you take with respect to them, determines blessings or curses because of the covenantal headship which is in both of those. So ultimately speaking, as Paul sees it, there's a first Adam and a second Adam, a first king, and whom we know to be a second king, our Lord Jesus Christ, the king of kings. But in between Adam and Christ, the Bible gives other pictures of this idea. It gives us pictures in the patriarchs and in judges and in kings, and in each case, when we get one of these pictures, we see the ultimate limitations and the failures of the people, the persons who fulfill those positions. That's one of the purposes of this book. So leading up to Samuel, we had the period of the judges, right? And the period of the judges didn't go well. It basically ended in anarchy and every person doing that which was right in their own eyes. In the book of 1 Samuel, we started off with Eli and his sons who were demonstrated to be poor judges, insufficient for the office that was given to them. And then Samuel's sons, remember they were also appointed to be judges over Israel, they failed in doing that. And so we come in the book to kingship and we see that Saul has failed as the first anointed king. Whoever fulfills these offices ultimately fails. They cannot deliver the people and in their failure is the suffering of many because they are represented. They are officially, they are spiritually the head of the people and so in their failure the people under them suffer as well. It leaves us waiting and looking and longing when we read of this for someone who can fill these offices appropriately. Verse 2, and the others won't be this long as that first one was. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. We see that Saul's sons were caught up in this as well, save one. And there's one who's going to come in the beginning of 2 Samuel, Ishbosheth, and that's not going to go well for David or for the people of God, the fact that Ishbosheth remains alive here. But these others are killed. 
And the tragedy of this, well, we don't know much about the other two, the tragedy of this perhaps is, as I've said, seen in the death of Jonathan and how Jonathan is caught up in all of this. Now, I say tragedy because of what I'm about to read for you. I have read throughout this series with deep appreciation uh, Ralph Davis, who wrote a commentary on this that I think is just wonderful. And I want to read what he has to say here about the death of Jonathan. And I quote, Here then is Jonathan's obituary. He remained a true friend to David and a faithful son of Saul. He surrendered his kingship to David. He sacrificed his life for Saul. In this hopeless fiasco, Jonathan was nowhere else but in the place Yahweh had assigned to him at the side of his father. As I noted before, and as I noted, I being Davis here, as I noted before, maybe that is not tragic at all. What is tragic about remaining faithfully in the calling God has assigned us? Was it tragic when Jonathan laid aside a kingdom he could not have to enter a kingdom he could not lose? Let me read that last question again. Was it tragic when Jonathan laid aside a kingdom he could not have? It belonged to David, right? A kingdom he could not have to enter a kingdom he could not lose. Now, I don't know if you recognize that allusion or not, but Davis is here making an allusion to Jim Elliot, the martyred missionary husband of Elizabeth Elliot, who, whose phrase I've used many times in sermons and in preaching over the course of the years is, he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And that's what Jonathan does here. That's his obituary. His was not the kingdom to keep, but his was the eternal kingdom to gain. Verses 3 through 5 then in the passage describe for us the death of Saul. The wounded Saul, wounded by the arrows of the archers, seeks death from the hand of his armor bearer to save him from an ignominious and a perhaps torturous death at the hands of the uncircumcised Philistine. The armor bearer refuses in fear. Perhaps he refuses because, and this is what I want to suggest is the reason, though this man is flawed, Saul, though judgment is rightly falling upon him for his sin, and though at this point his death is inevitable, he has received mortal wounds. He is not going to recover from this. You still don't raise your hand against the Lord's anointed. You don't do it. Even if you're the armor bearer and even if Saul is saying, listen, take the sword and kill me now. You don't raise your hand against the Lord's anointed. There's going to be another part to this story. It's in the beginning of 2 Samuel, and David will make exactly this point. Don't raise your hand. I don't care what the circumstances are. Don't raise your hand against the Lord's anointed. Saul 
even at this moment, still bears that office. The man can't handle the office, but the office remains there, and the warnings with respect to it remain as well. And so he falls on his own sword. The king has died. The first anointed king fails to live up to the hope and to the call. Remember how the people said, we, we want a king to be like the other nations who are around us. We want a king who will go out and fight our battles for us. We want a, in other words, we want a champion. We want a king. We want somebody who will defeat the enemies. And now the enemies have defeated and Saul has fallen on his own sword. Guilty. As all men are, save one. In the scriptures... Here's the epitaph that is given for Saul. It's in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13. After recounting the story, here's what we read. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. Saul died for his breach of faith. And that's a warning. That's a warning to all of us. It's a warning to the children of the church, to the parents of the church. Beware of the breach of faith and the wrath that comes afterwards. Verse 6, thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. It's a terrible verse. It's very plainly written. It's very plainly spoken to us. And as such, it is a quiet and clear testimony to the truthfulness, to the veracity of the word of God. We read something almost exactly like it earlier in the book. I'll read it for you from 1 Samuel chapter 4. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. It kind of sounds like the end. And they fled every man to his own home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That was in fulfillment of the word of God that the man of God had spoken about that day. This, too, is in fulfillment of the word of God. It's a replay. It's a replay for us. And instead of the ark being taken and put inside the temple of Dagon. Here we have the armor of Saul taken and put inside of a temple and displayed there as well, along then, of course, with the bodies of Saul and his sons taken as well. I will not read again for us, particularly for the sake of the children who are here, verses 7 through 10 in all of their viciousness and the brutality that is described in them. The loss is described in graphic terms for us. There is, in the first place, a displacement that takes place. 
We've talked a lot about place over the course of the summer. And here the people are scattered. They flee from their homes. The Philistines come in and take the land, and they inhabit the places where the people of Israel used to be for a time. But of course, that's not all that goes on. There's dishonoring. There's disgrace that has taken place with respect to the bodies of Saul and sons. There is a final divestiture. We've talked in summers past about clothing and about the investiture that God gives to the people of God clothing us. And in this book of 1 Samuel, we've seen clothing and armor go on and off, back and forth a number of times, all symbolic, all representing the will of God. And here, Saul is stripped. Stripped once last time of his kingship and of all that that should have covered him with honor. The defeat then is demeaningly and demoralizingly displayed by hanging up the bodies on the wall. And if that wasn't enough, what we read in here is a zeal for evangelism, a false evangelism, a, a, a desire of the Philistines to go out and proclaim the good news. The king of Israel and his sons are dead. And we have taken the armor. We have taken the cities. And you can go and see the bodies that are hung and displayed. A false good news, if ever it was there. This is the Diasire, the day of wrath and destruction. And if it seems distant to us, then I ask us this question. What doth every sin deserve? Every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse both in this life and that which is to come. That is what we see here. Diasire, Ichabod. Do you remember that from chapter 4? Ichabod. That was the name that the wife of Phinehas gave to the child she bore on the day she heard of the death of her husband, of her husband's brother, and of her husband's father, Eli, Ichabod. The glory has departed from Israel. First it was the ark, and now it's the king. Ichabod. It's over. Whither the glory of God, whither the glory of the people who bear God's name. Now, when you put this in the context of the Old Testament, all of the systems, think of the sacrifices here for a moment, all of the systems in the Old Testament, and all of the symbols in the Old Testament, think of the ark, think of the land of Israel itself, and all of the offices in the Old Testament, think of, for the sake of this book, the judges and the king, all of them have two realities that are going on at the same time. In the first place, they are all inadequate. 
we look at them and we see that whether it's an ark or land or whether it's the sacrificial system or whether it's these kings and these judges that in and of themselves there is no hope to be found in them. They're inadequate to do what you want them to do. What you want them to do is to take care of the problems. If it's the sacrifices, you want the sacrifices to take care of the problem of sin. If it's the Ark of the Covenant, you want the Ark of the Covenant to take care of the problem of the separation that exists from God. And this gives you a representation of God in your midst. If it's the king, the problem that you're talking about is that there's enemies that are out there that are conspiring against you to work your death and none of them work. They're inadequate in and of themselves to deal with the actual problems. That's reality number one. Reality number two is this. In their very inadequacy, you, if you were an Old Testament saint looking at this, if you were one who was reading this story for the first time, having heard it before, what you are supposed to do when you hear it is not only mourn for the fact of what took place here, but you need to be able to see through it. You need to be able to see through it. You're not just looking at a king. You're not just looking at the ark. You're not just looking at the sacrifices. You're looking through them to see that in their insufficiency, they point beyond themselves to one who is to come, to an anointed one who is to come, who himself will be the perfect sacrifice, who himself will be Emmanuel, God with us, and who will be himself the king of kings. That's what the stuff in the Old Testament is doing. And that's what's taking place here. Do not stop the story with King Saul. Because the story actually yields and sustains hope as well. These things, the systems and the sacrifices and the symbols and the offices, they actually are sufficient as they point us to Christ. And they are sustainers of hope. As dark, as dark as this passage is, there is a sliver of light that comes through at the end. There is hope in the midst of this complete failure. There are two hopes that are here. The first is within our passage itself. The first involves the men of Jabesh-Gilead. The men of Jabesh-Gilead hear what has taken place, and the men of Jabesh-Gilead remember the very first battle that King Saul had was the battle against the Ammonites to deliver Jabesh-Gilead. And when they see what has taken place to that anointed one who delivered them, then amongst them, the men of courage, the men of valor, the men who are faithful, the men who demonstrate steadfast covenantal loyalty, say, it ain't ending like this. We're going tonight to get those bodies and get them out of that situation. They go, if I can put it in the context of last week's, they go on a recovery. They go to recover the body. This is a, of Saul and his sons, delivering them from open shame and burying them. The second thing that gives us hope, 
is not in our passage. It's in the passage from the week before. We know, we know that there's another anointed king in waiting who is in the south, who at this very moment, two battles are taking place, one in which the people of Israel are being defeated, one in which the king anointed in waiting is defeating the Amalekites in the south, bringing gifts up to the people of Judah, preparing for the kingship. We know he's there. That was the chapter just before this one. And in 2 Samuel, these two groups are going to be brought together. The loyal, faithful men from Jabesh-Gilead are going to be introduced by the men of Judah to King David, and they are going to swear loyalty to one another. David to do good to them, them to show loyalty to David. There's hope. It's dark. It's bleak. But there's hope that is here. The great and awesome day of the Lord will come. Here's how the prophet Zephaniah describes it. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind, declares the Lord, in the day of wrath, the diasire. The day that is coming, the final day of judgment that awaits all mankind when we will be judged. We close them with this. What doth God require of us that we may escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin? Hear the answer. Hear the way of escape. That we may escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with a diligent use of all of the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of his redemption. There's an elegant simplicity in what is required to escape. There is a way of escape that is set forth, and it is the way of faith in Jesus Christ and repentance unto life. There is a king who has come. That king is faithful and true. That king was hung, hung not on the wall of Bethshan, but hung on the cross in shame, an ignominious death and display of ugliness and of brutality. Saul was hung there for his sin. Jesus was hung there for yours. 
there's a way of escape. Faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life. Great God in heaven, help us. We need your help. We need your mercy, your kindness, and your love. We need your vision. Lord, our lives get full of little busy details of work and school and all sorts of little things that we have to do. Feeding and clothing. That we could forget about this day that is to come. The day when all the thoughts and all the secret intentions of the heart are revealed. Lord, help us. Help us to have faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Genuine repentance and to make with joyful delight use of all of the ways that you have assured to us the benefits of the redemption that you, Jesus, have accomplished. Lord, help us to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name.